very privileged. Um, it's going to be hard not to let that get to my hands. Thank you, John. Good morning. Um, yeah, so I think to begin with, well, I just want to emphasize that my presentation is more focused on land in terms of agriculture and agrarian land reform because I am from Zimbabwe and our land reform was mostly agrarian. So for Africans, um, in general, actually, I think that land speaks to a sense of belonging. It speaks to a sense of hope. And specifically for Africans, that um, sense of belonging is not just belonging to a people, but that people um, belonging to a land, right? So it's central to our culture and identity. Um, from the beginning to the end of life, for example, in traditional African cultures, we bury our umbilical cords in, in the land, and when someone dies, we bury them in the land. So there's that circle of life revolving so essentially around land. Um, my Twitter bio reads that I'm a daughter of the soil or, and a child of God, and that's like a common um, thing that black people embody, this deep connection with land. And I really believe that it's because land affirms the dignity of a people. It um, provides a, a space for fulfilling work and the joy of participation in building something, in building a homestead, um, in making a livelihood. So as John said, I'm really passionate about storytelling at this point in my life. So I'm going to start off with how I find myself in the story of land and um, my family. So I grew up like most children in Zimbabwe um, at the time, the early 90s, late 80s. I'm not giving away my age, but you can guess. Um, <laughs> my parents were working in the city. They had um, government jobs. My father was a teacher. My mother was a social worker. So I spent most of my childhood years with my grandparents in the village. My grandparents were subsistence farmers, but they were teachers as well. So they had that um, kind of double vocation. And each day, as a child even, every single day, some of my chores, most of my chores, involved something that was deeply attached to land. From herding animals, to getting the water from the well, to helping ground peanuts for peanut butter, and sometimes helping slash distracting the people working in the fields. And I would often hear my older relatives, so usually my uncles or my older cousins, complaining about the quality of that soil, complaining about um, yeah, how it did not yield as much. And I, obviously, to my young mind, that was very confusing. But they would always reminisce <coughs> about the good old days at the old farm. And this farm was bought, um, sorry. So my grandfather had bought this farm in 1954, the old farm, um, when the year when my mother was born. So that was my favorite part of the story, because at least I could understand that part. Um, my mom was born in that year, and that day they bought that day they bought something, or that year they bought something. And that piece of land my grandfather had bought from um, Garfield Todd, who was a prime minister of Rhodesia at the time. He was a liberal um, politician in, in Rhodesia then, so his political career was um, short-lived. And to my grandfather, though, Garfield Todd was more than the prime minister. I always felt proud of this fact. So um, they were brothers in Christ, and they had a really good relationship. So both men had come to Rhodesia um, around the same time. I think my grandfather would have come a little bit earlier as missionaries with the Church of Christ. 
and one had come from New Zealand and the other had come from Swaziland. But they had both come with the mission of spreading the gospel in their country. Um, going back to Garfield Todd, so he, as a liberal uh, politician during that time, he began buying up cheap tracts of land and then um, either selling them or um, building towards this project that he had to, uh, I lost my, <laughs> so he had a long-term project of agrarian reform, but more of education in that particular um, town in Zimbabwe, which is called Tushawan. So he built a school, among other things, and that school was where my grandfather teached and where certain Robert Mugabe also teached at some point in his career. So it's very central to Zimbabwean political history. Anyway, um, my grandfather then, from his savings as a teacher, managed to buy one of his tracts of land. But as the, as the policy started to change, that land was taken away from them. And because my grandfather was very active um, in the politics of the time, and for some, for some time he was a political prisoner, the land that they were allotted was um, even poorer quality, and it was a smaller piece. So from this story, like most stories that tell um, yeah, stories about land or just history, um, at this point, the narrative has been a single story, with the main, male, main characters being male my grandfather and the prime minister. What is missing is the role of the women in the story. Um, for example, the role that my grandmother, my aunts, and my mother played in this place that they called home, the place that they um, worked on every single day. So the plight of landless women is often ignored, but I find sol solace in the fact that in the Bible, an entire book, the book of Ruth, is dedicated to telling the story of landless women. Um, beyond the romance of the book of Ruth is essentially a story about land and land ownership, but specifically the plight of landless women. So I live in the Winelands at the moment. Complicated. Okay. Um, but one of my uh, experiences from living in Stellenbosch, and of course from my childhood as I explained, is I, I often just see that women have such an intimate relationship with land. So from seed time to harvest, they're working the fields. Um, and yeah, I just recently found out about the, the shocking numbers, the shocking amounts that the women that pick the grapes and the strawberries in Stellenbosch earn. Um, I think officially it's 16 rand an hour, which is just enough for a loaf of bread. Um, and going back to yeah, it's just the essential role that women play in, in land uh, from an agricultural point of view. Essentially, women are food producers. They are the main food producers in any African household. Um, in South African political history, there's a famous saying, which is, essentially, <laughs> which is essentially, if you strike a woman, you strike a rock. And I grew up hearing this, no idea what it meant. Just thought, yeah, yes, <laughs> rock. <laughs> um, but um, I've, I've gotten to find the understanding that this rock is just no ordinary rock. It's a grinding stone. So I remember growing up, I'd see my grandmother grinding peanut butter on um, a bigger stone and then a smaller one too. That's what it looked like to me. Uh, so essentially, I think the saying is talking about how if you strike a woman, you essentially strike the hand that feeds you. 
and you lose your sense of nourishment and eventually you die. Okay, so let's get to the punchline. I am the Zimbabwean in the, the token Zimbabwean on the panel. And just from, oh, I was just chatting, chatting to Caroline before this that I've tried to distance myself from any conversations about land because it gets so heated with the punchline each time being we don't want to end up like Zimbabwe. So let's talk about the punchline. Um, land reform in general is, or any reform, is governed by historically specific conditions in the society in question. And I take most of my um, statistics and facts from a book by Teresa Smart, who's a UK-based um, researcher who's taken, uh, I can't remember how many years, but a number of years researching land reform in Zimbabwe up to this point. So the facts in general are that Zimbabwe moved from about 6,000 uh, white farmers, mostly white farmers, to 150,000 farmers um, currently now. And those far the, the, far the land is state-owned, and each farmer has a 99-year lease on the land. But female land ownership in Zimbabwe increased from less than 5% when it was majority white farmers to 20% full ownership by black women. Um, so Zimbabwe in the land reform has a range of progressive laws aimed at that gender equality. So those laws include uh, statutes about land and about marriage and inheritance and succession. One of the main things is that it wasn't like this previously, but that um, ownership in terms of a family has to include both spouses as being the, the landholders. Another one of the differences is um, you might wonder from 6,000 to 1,500, where did all that, uh, 250,000, where did all that land come from? So it's literally just an agrarian reform where the country is moving away from um, large scale mechanized farming to smaller um, farms. And contrary to popular belief, it's not just subsistence farming, it's smaller farms but on a commercial basis. Um, and one of the reforms that I found interesting, especially as a Christian, is that the small, the small scale commercial farmers farm for six days um, in a week of seven days. So they give the land one day to rest. And although production on those farms is still not matching the, what it was pre previously, there is an increase every single year. So there is growth because people are reinvesting whatever they've earned from that year and they're reinvesting it into the next year. And I think growth is an important indicator. And the corruption question? Hi. <laughs> so 10% of the land in Zimbabwe, according to Teresa Smart's research, is owned by cronies, uh, which is corrupt government officials mostly. But the media coverage would make it seem that that's the, that's the main deal, right? So we ignore, again, the danger of a single story narrative we ignore the 90%, the 90% of real people um, that are part of, yeah, part of the resettlement. And the main problems with the Zimbabwean land reform obviously are around unused farms and the lack of farming inputs. So let's talk about that. Um, so one of the main problems in Zimbabwe right now is, at, especially earlier on, is the lack of economic Input. So the lack of in economic ability to participate um, even as new farmers. For example, 
in the 50s when um, the land reform took place initially to benefit the white minority, they were given subsidies to, give, to get a kickstart. And every new farmer will tell you, you need, you need some help, right? But in our failing economy and yeah, in the political situation, that was not available to them. And often when I hear the panic and the fear around South Africa ending up being a Zimbabwe, I don't know, I'm not freaking out. <laughs> I think that Zim and South Africa are two different scenarios. And I think what often gets ignored is the fact that land reform in the context of Zimbabwe was not under normal conditions. Um, for example, we still have sanctions against the country from the United States and the EU. And what's usually um, dismissed is that those sanctions are against particular individuals. But farmers are subject to those sanctions because someone is calling me, John. <laughs> because um, they cannot benefit from, for example, any foreign donors or any foreign NGOs that would be able to support them. So there's that and the fact that they don't have any government subsidies. And because of our failing economy, they cannot access bank loans either. And also just on the basic level, we've had a drought for a number of years. And as um, Cape Tonians will know, people in the Western Cape right now, drought is a major factor. And um, maize is the stable crop in Zim. And that production went down, um, I didn't write down the numbers, but it went down significantly because of the lack of rain. So obviously that led to food shortages and a food crisis. So just in closing, I want to look at um, how theology frames our understanding and our response to the land issue. For me, growing up, because my grandparents were ministers, and a lot of people in my family were ministers, I never separated the two. Um, and in reading Genesis, I find God basically giving the first land treaty, where he gives specific borders and boundaries demarcated by rivers, and he gives title and authority to um, to have dominion and to take care of that land to Adam. And with sin and the fall, we see the first family being banished from the garden and their lifetime, their lifetime lease on the land is rescinded because they exceeded their authority and the terms of the contract. And through the story of the Bible, we see shifting borders each time. And I think um, this indicates that God gives land to all tribes and nations. That's his deal from the beginning. And keeping those lands, however, is based and dependent on the values and the culture that that um, particular people group develops. So in this regard, God's uh, promises on land are conditional. So in reading the book of Numbers, my East Mountain community, we've been reading the Bible together. <coughs> Some of us have been keeping up better than others. Um, and I remember spending the longest time in the book of Numbers trying to understand how this linked to um, the land question right now. And I found that um, initially God divided the land based on the populations of the tribes. So basically, more land for larger tribes and smaller pieces of land for smaller tribes. It makes perfect sense and that um, God's against minority ownership. Later on in Numbers, God, um, also later on, the land distribution specifically to the tribes is headed up by Joshua, who is a government official, and 
the ecclesiastical institutions are involved in Eliezer of the priest role, with the help of a leader from each tribe. So in other words, the distribution was ratified by the people, supported by God, and enforced by law. So I, I especially find it difficult being a young, black, Zimbabwean woman, Christian, at this time in the land debate in South Africa, because I was, I was not familiar with this before, but the more that I, I have conversations with people, there's this understanding that the two should be separate, that church and land should not be in conversation. But I think we'll hear earlier how those, especially in this country, are so intrinsically linked. And as a young person, because um, that's what it said on my bio, as a young person at this time, you would look globally, there's just a move of activism and young people pushing for social change, it's, it's, oh, it's very frustrating to be able to see where we've come from and long, um, long to, to push forward. And I think we ought to start, as Peter said, by acknowledging the mess in this created order through history and in this moment. And I think confession and repentance follows that acknowledgement. And I really believe that repentance it, at this point in the land discussion, takes the form of land reform. And I think that the work of having to convince each other that um, is biblical for me right now is, is very frustrating. So I will stop there.